Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Canada Post strike has been going on for over a month now. Can the government resolve the dispute in a timely fashion, or will they be forced to end the strike? What are the benefits to having cannabis stores in Hamilton? And also, a study reveals that Canadians are sacrificing necessities and borrowing money to pay for their medications. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Everybody's talking about what's going on with Canada Post right now. The Canada Post strike has continued for over a month now. Uh, The federal government is looking now to -to back-to-work legislation if there is no resolution in the coming days. Uh, A lot of people are being impacted by this, and, uh, well, I'm hearing more and more about this each and every day from different organizations. So uh, how do we deal with something like this? This has been going on for over a year, that being the negotiations. I want to bring Alan Freeman into the discussion. Alan is a graduate school public of... uh, graduate school, rather, public and international affairs at uh, the University of Ottawa. Alan, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us Hi. here today. Uh, this is the, the negotiations I'm ongoing like this for, what, a year now? And this is awfully frustrating. I, I mean, there are those people that think, well, who really needs the post office anymore? But this is still, as we're starting to find out, uh, a rather important part of our economic uh, engine. Yeah, right. Um, I would say it's sort of different from the 70s or the 80s when it was really an essential service. You know, that when people really, the public, you know, would really suffer if old age security pensions, if, um, you know, unemployment insurance checks didn't come through. Um, It's less an essential service, but it's very, very essential for a big part of business, which is online shopping and um, that whole new economy. Because essentially Canada Post is in two businesses. It's in mail. You know, uh, and that's a declining, dying business. And it's sort of compensated by growing its parcels business. And that's the real issue now. We're getting to uh, the Christmas season. It's a big, big season for parcels. And with these rotating strikes, it's taken some time, but there's a real backlog. And I guess the small businesses, the big businesses that use Canada Post are starting to scream. Well, the story I heard, the number I heard was about 500 trucks right now that are filled with parcels that are not being delivered. And and that's not somebody's grandmother sending cookies for the holidays. I mean, that, that's 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 commerce, isn't it? No, that's the way, you know, that's the way business is done these days. And that's really, if for retailers, that's where the growth is. And of course, Christmas is a big... So, you know, we've got... So the pressure is really coming from Canadian Federation of Independent Business, which is small business, but also from the big boys at eBay, Amazon, the big users of Canada Post parcel service. Because even though there's competition in this business, Canada Post is far from being alone. There's FedEx, there's UPS. It's the biggest provider. And I don't think logistically the others can really compensate for the loss of Canada Post service right now. So I would guess that the pressure is also probably coming from Canada Post management, which says, look, if this if this uh, strike continues very much longer, we're going to lose a lot of this business going forward because we're going to be seen as not being reliable. It's interesting. I'm glad you drew the analogy from like the 1970s. And I can remember some of those uh, long while some were lockouts, some were strikes. Uh, but the the protest oftentimes were, as you say, people that were collecting uh, you know old age pension checks, etc. And it's it's business that's banging on the door of Parliament Hill now, saying, "Look, this is cur- this is crippling us." Right. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, it's more of an inconvenience. You know, if you don't get your cannabis in the mail this week, you get it next week, okay. You know, it's not, it's not an essential service, but for all the, you know, for the, particularly for business, it's really 
um, if you're in that business, and you know, say if you're in a you're running a small business that is doing gifts and use Canada's Post as as the main way of getting stuff out, and you depend on Christmas season for half your business. This is getting to be crunch time. You know, there's another group I heard from, and this is interesting. I got an email yesterday as we were having this discussion on the program, uh, and it's charities. Uh, in this case, it was local charities here in the Hamilton area, but apparently they rely very much on, on what they call snail mail. I mean, in other words, the traditional mail yeah. of people sending in checks, especially around this time of year. And, of course, that's been stymied now. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I would think that for people who can use an alternative, right, you know, even paying your utility bills, it's sort of just like why are you paying your gas or your hydro bill by snail mail anymore? So it's going to convince people to move away from, um, you know, even more so from, from, uh, from letters. But I would think, you know, the government, I don't think the government really likes to intervene in these things, but they're sort of, at one point, they have no choice. And the problem with, a, with having an industry which has a history of government inter- intervention in labor disputes is that neither side, if you want to be honest, has a real incentive to come to a negotiated agreement. On, on the Canada Post side, they're probably telling the government, look, we can't agree to those costs, those extra costs that the union is going to impose on us. We need to get back to work because we need to get them back to work because we're losing business, you know, to UPS or FedEx or whatever. And remember, their shareholder is the government, right? So mm-hmm. the government can set the rules. And from the union point of view, if you're the Canadian Union of Public uh, Postal Workers, let's be honest. If you have promised your, uh, you know, uh, members that they're going to get such and such and such and such, the negotiations are such that really they can't really get what they're asking for. In some ways, instead of telling your members, look, vote for a less than perfect deal, it might be just as easy to say, you know what, the government's forcing us back to work. We can't do anything about it. Sorry. Is that where we're going to get to? I mean, they've they've reappointed a, 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 an arbitrator to this situation right now. Yeah. Hopefully they're going to get a negotiated they, settlement. You know, everybody, you know, there have been all these different deadlines, etc. I actually think, I'm not that optimistic that they'll come to uh, a negotiated agreement this week, but the government has basically said, I guess it's by the end of the week or early next week, I think we're going to have back-to-work legislation. That's just a guess. I'm, I'm, you know, maybe suddenly both sides will suddenly realize, okay, we better get down to it. We'd rather have a negotiated agreement than, a, you know, than an agreement that's forced on us. But I don't know. Uh, I just think there's too much of a history of, of depending on the government to set the terms. Well, time will tell. And as I say, the sand seems to be running out of the hourglass. Alan, thanks as always for the time. We greatly appreciate it. Okay, welcome. Take care. Alan Freeman, of course, from the University of Ottawa. Well, uh, what about the other side of the table? Mike Palachek is the national president of uh, Cup W, uh, who have been uh, going, well, from rotating strikes to, uh, I think, a great deal of consternation right now, given the scenario and what the federal government's talking about right now. Mike Palachek joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to talk about this. Mike, thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Uh, your thoughts about uh, the federal government's announcement now that they're going to reappoint uh, uh, somebody here to try to find some middle ground? Uh, well, we were happy to see a mediator reappointed. We wish they'd done it sooner. Uh, we had been asking for it for a little while. Um, that being said, uh, we're, we're not optimistic about uh, negoti- coming to a negotiated agreement. Um, history has shown us that once the government threatens legislation, 
Canada Post usually just sits back and waits for that legislation. Is that what you're anticipating is going to happen this time, Mike? Well, we'll see. We'll be back at the table today. Um, we're, we, we remain committed to uh, negotiating a collective agreement. Uh, we believe that's the only way to get a deal that both sides can live with. And we're in this situation precisely because of back-to-work legislation uh, from the previous government, uh, which has made it impossible for us to settle issues as they come up. And now we have an injury crisis at Canada Post. Uh, Our members are now the most injured workforce in the federal sector. That's an element of this negotiation that not a whole lot of people are paying a whole lot of attention to. But uh, this is not just about money, is it? Uh, no, actually, we're fairly close on, on the money issues, but there are uh, other big issues that re- re- revolve around uh, health and safety, around forced overtime, and, and uh, equality for women. Is that staffing? Is it just, you know, are they not paying for enough people to cover shifts? Yeah, that's uh, certainly part of it, but what, what we've seen is uh, more and more work being dumped onto our members, and they're they're being asked to just go out and make do and deliver it. Um, it's not uncommon for postal workers to be working late into the night now, um, and Canada Post's only response is to give us headlamps. You've talked about an injury crisis, uh, and I guess obviously the, the, some of the stuff you've just talked about now are, are the contributing factors to that, overwork, long shifts, uh, you know, as you say, what they call precarious working conditions. Uh, is there any movement at all? Are you close on any of these issues? Uh, well, Canada Post has at least acknowledged they have a problem, finally. Uh, that, that's a first step, so. isn't it? Uh, sure. Uh, what they've put on the table is completely insufficient. They basically want to kick everything to a committee, and uh, they say they'll have a $10 million budget for that committee. Uh, well, frankly, we already have health and safety committees. Um, we know that's just an excuse for inaction. And we're not going to bargain a dollar amount on health and safety. Uh, Canada Post needs to stop injuring our members, period. So when you sit down today, uh, and, and there's going to be a mediator there, what's what's the message to the mediator? Uh, well, it's uh, Morton Hitchnick is a mediator that we've worked with uh, in past on this round of negotiations. Um, he should be familiar with the issues already, and we hope that he'll be able to help bridge the gap and you know, each, each party see uh, things in a different light possibly. We've talked in the past about, and you mentioned the, the other negotiations that have gone on, and it hasn't gone well. I mean, nobody wins in situations like this usually. Uh, the, the public, uh, your side, the government side, Post Canada Post, whatever it is, everybody seems to go away disgruntled. Are you optimistic that you can make a, a, a more improved situation and actually find a settlement this time? Well, we could settle this today if we had a, a willing partner on the other side of the table. Uh, we've been talking about these issues for years. We've been at the bargaining table for a year. Um, the issues are all well known, and Canada Post knows exactly what they need to do to settle this. But as you say, now that the threat of back-to-work legislation is there, do they simply sit on their hands and wait for that to happen? Is that a fear that you, that you guys are, are trying to deal with right now, that uh, that this may be fruitless because they, they're just going to run out the clock? Uh, well, that's certainly a concern, uh, and time will tell. Uh, as I said, we'll be meeting today, and we'll have a better idea. What about a, d- a different attitude towards the negotiations? I mean, since this seems to come to a head on a pretty regular basis now, for a variety of reasons, and, and you've got some very legitimate concerns that need to be addressed here, 
we've we've talked in the past about binding arbitration, and and obviously the Canada Post folks don't seem to really want to go down that road. What what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, we couldn't accept binding arbitration for a, a variety of reasons. Uh, one is that it would uh, give away uh, our members' right to vote on their own collective agreement, and as a matter of principle, we couldn't do that. Uh, but at the same time, arbitration always sets up a winner and a loser. Um, and the uh, only way to get a deal that both sides can live with is to negotiate it. And that's obviously what you'd like to see happen. That's uh, what the public would like to see happen here. But, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself about what are the chances of that actually occurring because of, of the circumstance that we've got right now. Is is there any opportunity for you to talk to the government about this? I mean, uh, to get your message across and have, have them a, a more full understanding of exactly what the issues are here? Well, they've certainly heard from us. And ultimately, uh, the government is responsible for Canada Post. They're not a neutral party here. Well, obviously, they've, they've got the hammer here. Uh, and I know they always like to say this is arm's length, but it's not really. I mean, there's, there are very close ties between the two. And invariably, uh, you know, let's face it, when they introduce back-to-work legislation, uh, they're obviously coming down on the side of, of Canada Post here because that's going to force you guys back to work as opposed to having a negotiated settlement. Right, and we have a government that claims to believe in free collective bargaining. Uh, apparently, that's only when convenient. Uh, you know, they claim to believe in equality for women. They claim to believe in ending precarious work. They claim to believe in work-life balance. Uh, but we have a crown corporation that's doing exactly the opposite. Uh, so you'll have to ask them how to square that circle. Mike, I've talked to some businesses that have been impacted by this, and, and obviously they're concerned about this and concerned about their long-term uh, effectiveness, uh, especially this time of year. Some are looking to other carriers now to try to get things delivered, parcels delivered, etc. Uh, is there a fear that if, if they leave Canada Post and go someplace else that they're not coming back? Well, that's always a concern with any labor dispute. Um, and uh, for us, that's more reason for Canada Post to get to the table and negotiate. Uh, Mike, uh, I hope things work out for everybody. I, I, I share some of the same concerns you just did about about back-to-work legislation, but that seems to be the sword that's hanging over everybody's head right now. We'll see if it falls or not. Appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Mike Palachek, uh, National President with uh, Cup W. And uh, I, I get this. And, and look, at some of these things, I've talked to folks at Canada Post, and some of these things are very legitimate about injuries. I mean, this is this is a different kind of work. This is not just letter carriers anymore. It's about parcel delivery, and uh, and obviously there's a concern here about wages uh, between genders, uh, overburdening, uh, what they call precarious work, which I think just about everybody is is concerned about these days, Canada Post or not. Uh, and you wonder right now whether or not there's actually a chance of getting a settlement. I, I know Alan Freeman from University of Ottawa said just predicted, I guess, a couple of minutes ago on the program, that he's pretty much, cons- uh, I, I think, at the point right now where he's thinking, you know what, this is this is going to be back-to-work legislation. Uh, the Harper government did this a few years ago. It caused a lot of bad feelings on both sides of the issue, and we may well be heading down that same road again, unfortunately. But we'll certainly keep our eye on what's going on and uh, bring that news to you when and if it does happen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Much has been said and uh, written, obviously, about the legalization of cannabis, uh, which happened, of course, the middle of October. 
And uh, municipalities, including Hamilton, are uh, at the point where very shortly they're going to have to make a decision whether or not they want to opt in or opt out of actually having these licensed establishments in their municipality. It's not going to happen right away, but it is going to happen soon. And the the provincial government rather has said, look, you got to say yay or nay to this. Uh, now, uh, we've talked to a couple of city councilors already who seem to be indicating that there's a lot of trepidation on council about this, and, and some are suggesting maybe maybe they're going to vote to opt out of this. Well, that uh, inspired an op-ed piece uh, written by actually a person who was in the business for quite some time here in Hamilton. And Brittany Guerra has opened, had opened a couple of stores who's since been shuttered because uh, she, I guess, wants to apply for a legitimate license. But what's the upside, what's the downside for the municipalities in this? I'll get Brad Paulus into this, uh, instructor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at uh, Ryerson University. Brad, thanks for jumping in today. Appreciate it. Good morning, Bill. What, if you had, had to present a business case, uh, for instance, to Hamilton City Council or Toronto or anybody else like that, what, what's the upside for the municipality in, in saying, yeah, we want to be part of this? I guess probably the easiest and simplest one to identify would be jobs. So by opting out of having cannabis stores in your municipality, you're, you're pushing jobs to another municipality, you know, in the near, somewhere nearby. Uh, and then, of course, the spin-off jobs that come from any sort of retail business that exists in, uh, you know, in any municipality. Uh, Ms. Gary, in the piece that uh, that she wrote, uh, as I mentioned, she had a couple of shops here in what we call the International BIA. That's just down King Street in Hamilton. And uh, she talked about the spin-off businesses, that uh, people would actually come to their stores, uh, go across to the restaurant, go to other stores there, too. So, obviously, that's I guess that's a factor in any way. Do, but we, do you see that happening here with uh, with this industry, Brad, that, that cannabis stores could actually become magnets for business districts? I, I think it's true of any retail business. So, there's always, you know, people want to have convenience. So, if I'm heading out to get a bottle of wine, I'm going to likely patronize the convenience store that's beside the LCBO as opposed to some other one. So uh, it's just a natural sort of outcropping of having, re- you know, retail concentration. Um, what I'm really puzzled by is really what the council is trying to achieve here. Well, they're, they're not saying it, but I, I'm, I'm getting from some of their comments that uh, I think what a lot of them are considering here is, look, at this is going to cost us money. I know there's going to be money up front from the province if you opt in, but that's only, I think, for two years. And they're thinking, you know, long term, uh, we want a piece of the pie. I think that's what they're saying. Well, the other thing to keep in mind is that the government, the Ontario government, has given municipalities a single opt-out option, which they must um, invoke by this. 22nd of January. And then after that, if they go in, they can't come back out. So if you're a super prudent politician, you may just say, okay, we'll opt out for now. We'll watch what happens in other municipalities. And then, of course, we can opt in when the sky doesn't fall. Uh, I, I think it's you know a, a little bit cowardly, but nonetheless, I could, I could absolutely see politicians going that way. So that, that's that's the conundrum that they find themselves in, and some of them have suggested just that, that, you know, if we say no, we can always say yes later uh, if we see that, hey, we missed the boat on this. But that, that is, has the ship already sailed at that point? I suspect for a city the size of Hamilton, the answer to that would be no. Um, if if, if a municipality the size of Hamilton had no cannabis stores in it, and all of the residents of Hamilton had to go somewhere else to get their cannabis, so so nearby, you know, Burlington or or uh, somewhere in Niagara or wherever, then the moment the cannabis stores were available in Hamilton, I think people would flock to them.
I mean, that's that's just yeah. economics 101, isn't it, really, when you think of it, Brad? I mean, it, if, if there were no shoe stores in Hamilton and I had to go to Burlington, I'd go to Burlington because I need shoes. But as soon as they open one here in Hamilton, why would I go back to Burlington? It's absolutely right. It's just, I think the argument about what they're trying to achieve, you know, protection of children or, you know, property values and the like, it's just incredibly specious to me. So, you know, we have we have cigarettes and, and alcohol that are readily available and arguably much more dangerous to children. Um, and and we and we, this guy doesn't fall. We don't have people getting drunk outside LCBOs, and you won't see people getting crazy, stupid high outside of a cannabis store. But as you and I have talked about in the past, I mean that that's almost you know that akin to the the reefer madness stuff that went on. You know that if you know everybody that's you know, that, this is Cheech and Chong. I mean, if you have one of these things within five hundred yards of a school, you know the kind of people you're going to get there. And my answer to that would be, I say, no, I don't think you do know the kind of people that you're going to get there. You'd be surprised the kind of people you see inside a cannabis store. So you see executives, you see school teachers, you see clergymen, uh, and you know clergy people. Um, so cannabis use is, is you know it's, cannabis is used by around somewhere between twenty and twenty five percent of the population in any given year. Um, it's a it, it's is, is that medical represented. is that medical and recreational brand that that would include all use. Okay. Because uh, that's been going on for the last little while, and, and again, I don't see too many people complaining about that. But uh, it, how do we get over this stigma? I mean, because I still think that's that big cloud that, that's hanging over a lot of municipalities right now. As a matter of fact, some of the councillors I've talked to uh, said, you know, when we went door to door in the in the municipal election, you know, in the, in the fall, but we got a lot of concerns, and we don't want that stuff around here. We don't want that stuff near our kids. And and as we all know, politicians tend to, you know listen to what people are saying like that, and that tends to guide them in what they want to do. Whether it's right or wrong, public opinion really pushes the agenda often. Yeah, it's just simply fear of the unknown. So I think as we move through um, having full legalization here in Ontario, which means access to storefronts, which will come in the spring, and as we observe in the other provinces who are six months or so ahead of us, that the sky doesn't fall, then I think, you know, the average Canadian will say, okay, this is probably much ado about very little. Uh, but we need time for that. What about those that, that do opt out? Uh, you, obviously, you mentioned there's an opportunity for them to come back in later on. Uh, and and I, there's always going to be, you know, well, we should have, could have at that time. But at the same time, I, I don't see a downside here to simply saying, let's give this a shot. I, they seem to think that, you know, there's going to be this, this plethora of shops and there's going to be 16 of them in a row on every street here. Uh, the free market will dictate that, will it not? If you think about it, Bill, most of the people that are entering this industry are highly sophisticated business people. They're, they're even new companies that are jumping into this space. They're recruiting sophisticated retail, you know, managers who really understand issues like location and concentration of, of, you know, your own locations and, and, and co-location with the competition and all that kind of stuff. And I can tell you the notion of 16 pot shops in a row would be ridiculous. Um, have you ever seen 16 LCBOs in a row? You won't see. The same, and I realize the LCBO is a monopoly. It's a little bit of a of a cute argument on my part, but nonetheless, um, as you said, market forces are going to dictate. I want to talk to you about what you just brought about, because I've got that in my notes here as well. The people that are behind this, the people that are investing in this industry, uh, the people that see this as, as a very viable, and as a matter of fact, more than viable, but profitable industry. There's some pretty big names here, and some pretty. Uh, there's a lot of money coming into this. 
Absolutely, and the government makes a pile of money off it in the long run, as they do off of all the other sins of Canadians, if you want to use that silly analogy, you know, off of cigarettes and alcohol and gambling and the like. Well, I mean, names like Julian Fantino come to mind, uh, who was apparently a big opponent of this whole thing when he was in the the policing business. Uh, He's one of the big investors, I'm told now. I mean, they obviously see this now as a business enterprise, not simply as something that's illegal. And it's not just because it's become legal now, but I think they see the legitimacy of this. Yeah, in fact, Mr. Fantino's in non-executive management as well. So, um, oh, sorry, (laughs) I know I misspoke. Mr. Fantino's a... not in non-executive management, my bad. Um, so I think that's one of the things that actually perturbs a lot of people in the industry that have fought for a long time for, for legalization is the fact that we have former law enforcement people jumping in and, um, you know, reaping the benefits. It's, of course, it's a free country, and I, I welcome them in the industry, but a lot of people are, are you know, somewhat perturbed by it. Well, but, you know, they're doing their job. I mean, if you're a police officer and it's against the law, then I guess that's what you have to do. But, I mean, Fantino was outspoken about it, and obviously I think he's probably eating those words now. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> I, I mean, you can stand stand behind your, your, your comments earlier, Mr. Fantino, or you can simply say, do you want to make some money? And obviously he chose the latter, not the former. Yeah, and I guess without saying it, he's saying in, in, in some sense that perhaps, uh, if not he himself, then at least the policy that we've had in place in Canada for many decades is, has been just plain wrong. What's your, what's your read on how we're handling it here in the province of Ontario? I, I had a problem with the previous government's idea about going through LCBO stores. I, I know some people here have raised a number of concerns about free enterprise, but that seems to be the more practical way to do this. The government doesn't sell cigarettes. We, we rely on the private market to uh, police whether or not you know, somebody under 19 can walk into a store and buy cigarettes. And arguably, that private business owner has a much greater stake in making sure they get that right than a government employee. I've never heard of a government employee at the LCBO being fired for serving somebody under 19. However, a business owner could lose their license, their livelihood, and, you know, their family home. So I, I would argue that actually it's, the government is in a, a less, uh, the, the private market is in a, in a better position to uh, to enforce these rules. Brad, has there been any work on, on projections as to how, what kind of a revenue source this is going to be for government? So the, the estimates are that in the first couple of years, we're looking at somewhere in the around billion, billion and a half here in Canada in, uh, in tax revenues, perhaps a little bit more. Is, is that nationally? Yes. So, and obviously smaller amounts for, for provincial governments that are going to be involved in this. Correct. Uh, there's the licensing element of this. Uh, I, I understand the concern from city councillors, and I've heard it from our council here locally, about the policing costs, etc. But that's really what that pile of money that the province is setting on the table right now is for. I also find the policing cost argument to be a little bit specious because we've taken a product that used to be illegal and now it's legal. There should be, at least as it relates to individuals, there should be much less effort being put on enforcement of anything. Uh, yes, we now have some uh, stores that have to be policed, but Health Canada is going to do a really good job of that out of the gate. And so while there are some, obviously, some compliance costs for the government, um, I would argue that, you know, they could possibly go down over what they were when we had a war on drugs. Well, I was asking, I won't mention the individual's name, but one of the local officials here, 
And because and, they brought that point up, and I said, well, you know, I, I don't see policing around liquor stores. Uh, is, is that a problem? I mean, you know, are you afraid that underage stuff is going to get sold? Uh, I, I know there's a concern about selling cigarettes to minors, but we have bylaw officers and secret shoppers that, that seem to look after that. And as a matter of fact, those costs are not usually borne by the municipality. When you look right, bear right down, Brett, they're, they're, they're costs that are going right into the, to the business owner. They're the ones that pay for that. Yeah, yeah. I really do just think that all of this comes down to fear of the unknown. And it, it'll be relatively short order before uh, it all sort of gets... I think people will relax a little bit and, you know, we'll see cannabis stores in almost every municipality within a few years. But, you know, I can tell you from my political experience when I was on city council years ago, uh, you hear all kinds of furor and, and angst about something like this. And, and, and again, I, I agree with you. I think it can fall right into the guise of, of fear of the unknown. But when things do roll out smoothly and fi- people find out, that, uh, that, you know what, this is okay after all. Even if, you know, it doesn't have much of an impact, if any impact on my neighborhood, I didn't even know it was there. Uh, it's been there for six months and I didn't know this. You rarely hear anybody say, I guess I was wrong. They just get on with their lives. But but councillors, city councillors, no matter what the city is, Brad, city councillors will bend to that right now because they're going to get 15 or 20 phone calls or a couple of emails from people that say don't do this. Uh, and they don't see the long-term benefit. It's it's this old thing again about elected officials have to have long-term vision, and and it's, there's only a handful that seem to really have that. I think that's probably true, Bill. Uh, but I really do think that you'll see those phone calls diminish over time. Hence, the pressure on the politicians will reduce, and and within a few years, like I say, I, I'd be surprised if we don't see cannabis stores in almost every municipality in Ontario. Is the industry itself uh, doing an, enough to educate, for instance, even elected officials, but the public at large about this, that, that this is not the, the big bogeyman that everybody seems to think it is? Well, I, I think the retail companies are very active doing that. The other people in the ecosystem are really busy trying to produce cannabis and ship it to the OCS right now. <laughs> so um, I think the industry is doing a reasonable job. Yes, of, of getting to the politicians and letting them know. Of course, there's a lot of them. If you look at municipality, municipally across Ontario, it's thousands. Well, it's going to have to be done on a case-by-case basis, I guess, from municipality to municipalities. Now, to my knowledge, I, I think there's only been one community that's actually officially said that they don't want to, it was Markham, that they wanted to opt out of this. Have that's, you heard of more? That's correct. That's, that's my information as well. There's only one that's been officially gone so far to say that we've made a decision, this is what we're doing. It's rather premature since they've got an extra like, seven or eight weeks to actually make this decision. Uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, did, they, did they do this uh, as an informed decision or was this a knee-jerk reaction? I think it's a reaction to the population. I, I, I won't call it a knee-jerk reaction, but I will call it a reaction to local pressure, no doubt. Well, we'll see uh, when they decide to opt in, when they see the way things are going. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Bill. Take care. Brad Polis, who, of course, uh, is an instructor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. I, I think he's, he's bang on when it comes to lack of information about this and fear of the unknown. That's, that's human nature. I get that. But this is a legitimate enterprise now. And, and I know that some people still have this idea of... of Cheech and Chong, I go right back to that, you know, or reefer madness. And, and, and you know something, part of the problem is the way it's being portrayed oftentimes in the media. I mean, every time I see a television news story about this, invariably they've got some, what they call, back B-roll, background roll of, of some guy someplace with a, a big 
you know, a thing about as long as his arm, and that's you know that's what he's smoking. You figure I don't want that around there. That's not what this is about. Yet, yet that seems to be the portrayal sometimes, and that gets etched into people's minds. And obviously, of course, it's going to have an impact on how they feel about it. So I, I think, to our credit, let's turn the you know the mirror around for a second, and we have to in the media, I think, have to have a better understanding of this about how we talk about this and how we portray this because it does have an impact on how people are actually going to perceive something like this. It's happening. It's legal, and and I just hope that city council here in Hamilton has a full, frank, and informed decision about this before they decide what they're going to do. And and to the point about revenue, uh, that's not going to happen. I mean, I. I I know what they're going to. I know because of some of the shortcomings financially in in other areas. They'd love to be able to create another revenue stream. But I, I just don't see it in the cards, at least not now. I mean, maybe that's something that can be discussed a little bit later on uh, and about costs and things of that nature. You can have those discussions between provincial and federal governments. But for now, it's, it's just a matter of let's get this thing up and running and uh, and deal with some of the shortfalls and pitfalls as they happen and as they become uh, obvious to an awful lot of people. And don't do this and don't make a decision based on false information and mythology. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's another number for you that uh, that caught my eye this morning, and this is this is staggering. Uh, this is a study that was done in the University of British Columbia, and it uh, has uh, found that 731,000 Canadians, 731,000 across the country, actually had to borrow money to pay for their medications. You don't think this is ever going to happen in Canada? Oh yeah, yeah, we have we have uh, great health care here, and you don't have to pay. Yeah, you do have to pay for meds. It's causing an awful lot of financial stress, obviously, and it uh, it runs across all demographic uh, cores here. But uh, there's actually uh, a bit of a surprise there because it's most problematic with the younger demographic. Uh, Canadians aged 19 to 34 were three and a half times more likely to have to borrow money to pay for prescription drugs compared to ages 45 to 54. And those without uh, private uh, health insurance were twice as likely. Well, not everybody has private health insurance. So how do you handle something like this? How do you deal with problems like this? I want to bring Jay uh, Luena into the conversation. Jay is a consultant with the Investors Group and uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Jay. How are you doing today? Great, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Listen, we've heard that people are, are having tough financial times and, and things are pretty rough. And I, I'd never figured, and I'm sure a lot of Canadians are, are surprised by the fact that, that actually, you know, that it's, you have to make a decision, I guess, in some situations here. Do I buy the medication that I need or do I pay the rent? That, that, that's that's, tip, that, that's the classic between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a bigger story than that. Just just not uh, prescription medications or medications in general, but I just think healthcare overall, uh, you know, dental bills, um, physiotherapy, all those things, they just they seem to the price just keeps going up and up and the level of care that people are needing these days um, is higher and higher. So, yeah, a rock and a hard place whether you pay your rent or eat or or take care of yourself. So, um, I'm finding that a lot of our clients um, in that age bracket that you're talking about, 19 to 34, we don't have a lot of clients in that age bracket. But um, you, in prob- care- you probably should. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I look at um, uh, in Ontario from the age of 25 and over is when you have to start paying for your me- medications. Yeah. So the OHIP covers you till 25. So that number is a little bit skewed for across the country. But yeah, two two percent of Canadians uh, that nine hundred or seven hundred thirty one thousand is two percent of Canadians have to borrow, and that doesn't surprise me because just everyone's in a, in a position now where interest rates are low in general, so they look the the first 
thing they look at is oh, how I can borrow to do that. Um, whether it's buying for, for something for Christmas or, or prescription medications, I'm finding lots and lots of, of people that we come in contact with are borrowing as opposed to saving. And the reason is because interest rates are so low. So interest rates are starting to rise now recently, and it's, it's getting people in the mindset of, wait a minute, maybe I can't just borrow all the time because it's not as cheap as it, as it once was. So. When you're dealing with the older demographic, and, and they're impacted by this too, obviously, because there sure. are many of them on fixed incomes or you know, pensions, whatever the case might be. And, and, and as you say, Jay, as prices continue to rise, they, they, they're finding themselves getting into this squeeze. But, and that's, that's one thing. But you can counsel those people and say, okay, listen, you've got to plan for your retirement. You've got to have the nest egg, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But when you're hitting the lower demographic like this, uh, a lot of those people are just starting in the workforce right now. And, and, and you know, they're, they're not ready for this sort of thing, and they certainly don't have a nest egg. Sure, absolutely, and that's that's another problem, right? Because you look at the, the the cost of housing now, or the or the cost of rent. So uh, the cost of living for these young people coming out of university or college, or, or even graduating out of high school, um, trying to find a job first of all is, is difficult. Once they do find that job, just the cost of living, trying to buy something, trying to save for that first home, um, is very difficult. So the cost of living in Canada has gone up compared to the to to the wages. So it's very difficult for these these young Canadians to to put together some uh, something aside in the event that they do need to buy some medication or something like but, that. But you know, Jay, a lot of the time, people, I guess, are not aware of this. And I mean, they may have an existing medical condition, and, and mm-hmm. they understand about the cost of meds, et cetera, like this. But, but do they really plan for it and say, you know, I have to, when I turn 26, uh, this is on me? No, I don't know about you or I, but I knew it wasn't. I thought it was indestructible at nineteen or twenty or twenty-five yeah. or thirty-five, and you, you don't think you're going to get sick, and that's the that's the sad part is that you don't think you're going to get sick, so you don't plan for it. Yes, sure, people save for a house, people save for retirement because they know those are inevitable. Um, people don't think they're going to get sick, and that and that's the big thing, and that's why there's so many people here. The seven hundred thirty-one thousand, which is a staggering number, is no one plans for that. Or most people don't plan to get sick. The other thing is that there's a lot of uh, companies now that uh, don't provide health benefits. The, a lot of companies will provide uh, a bonus or a, a slush fund and say, you know what, you do what you want with it. If you want to save for your retirement or you want to put this down on a, a house or you want to put it towards benefits, that's up to you. But most young people are saying, I don't have two nickels to rub together, so I'm going to take that money and I'm use it part of my cash flow as opposed to buying benefits. And, and a lot of companies now are saying it's too expensive for us to have benefits. We're going to give you the option to buy benefits, but if you don't do it, that's, that's on you. That's not on the company anymore. So that's where I think that number gets inflated is because a lot of young Canadians are saying, I'm going to take my money and use it for something else. I'm not going to use it for health benefits. But that's, that's, that's a trend, though, isn't it, Jay? I mean, the, the paradigm has shifted. Uh, uh, there was a time, obviously, where most major companies had some sort of benefit package, and we, we relied on those. But uh, I don't know if it was the last recession or the, the one that happened in the 90s, whatever it was, that, that as companies were downsizing and, and looking to you know find efficiencies, uh, those are all the key phrases that they use, yeah. uh, benefit package is one of the first ones to go. For sure, for sure, because it's the most costly, and it's the easiest one, because if you're going to reduce wages, that's, that hits you in the pocket immediately, so it's, it's easier to go to an employee and say, listen, we're not going to touch your wages, we're going to give you the exact same amount we gave you last year, unfortunately, we have to reduce your benefits. So it's not an immediate hit until you see something like this, where you know, you, you've got some costs involved, where you've got some prescription medications, and you, you sure wish you had those benefits at that point, um, but it's not until you actually need it in that emergency situation or that, that situation that comes about. 
But immediately when they take that away from you, most young Canadians, again, think they're uh, not going to get sick. So uh, taking away those benefits doesn't really affect them immediately. Um, they'd rather get more money in their pocket on a paycheck as opposed to the benefits. So well, that was, Probably because so. we don't track it that often. I mean, you're right. When you're that age, you figure, okay, I, you know, I might get sick. I might, might need antibiotics for a week or two. Well, I can, I can handle that. I can cover that cost. That's not going to be much. Yeah. But you don't think of something long term. I mean, if you find out you've got a heart condition or high blood pressure or something and you have to be on medication. I mean, that that's not something you plan for. And so, no. and when it, when it hits you like that, I mean, where do you go? What do you do? And all of a sudden to say, you know what? Uh, I've, I've got to cover this now. And the, 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 we all know the cost of prescription drugs is skyrocketing as well. Yeah, and that's that's right. With the, with the cost of prescription drugs skyrocketing, that's why these companies have have dropped off some of their benefits, saying, "Listen, it's just too costly for us to keep this going. Um, we're taking, we're getting rid of those benefits." So to go into the the article when they're they're mentioning about uh, borrowing for this, I think it might be a little bit skewed too, because maybe some people are borrowing for a month, putting it on a credit card for the month, and paying it off the next month. I don't I don't know the the details of the study exactly what they were meaning by. Yeah, how I don't think I don't think they drilled down that far. No, they didn't but that's likely what happens right so people don't expect for things to happen and then all of a sudden an emergency comes up and they've got to put it on a credit card well now that's even a a bigger um, uh, rabbit hole that you go down because now you've got that interest payment on top of it so how are you going to get out of that 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 situation so we do see that often where uh, unexpected expenses whether it be medical expenses whether it be car expenses whether it be home expenses uh, unexpected expenses are what put, put people in a in a crazy situation where they're they're now borrowing on a credit card at 19% um, because they're living paycheck to paycheck. But it's a, it's a different scenario now. As you say, a lot of the companies are, are it's a double-edged sword really because a lot of the companies here, as you mentioned, are getting rid of benefit packages. At the same time, a lot of healthcare service providers and, and, and insurance companies you know, that are offering these packages uh, are, are shrinking their coverage now, mm-hmm. and and let's face it, there's uh, some other the other element to this whole thing is is the government themselves that are delisting an awful lot of medications because they can't handle the high, the soaring costs, and so yep. they're simply saying that medication that uh, that you didn't have to pay for last year, Jake, you have to pay for it now because we're not covering it anymore. Yeah, you got it. No, and that's exactly it. The the, the nice thing about uh, our government is they they do take care of the 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 minors, so anyone under the age of 25. And then everyone over the age of 65 um, is part of our Ontario Drug Benefit Program. Yeah. So um, it's those middle age uh, from from 25 to to 65. The people that are earning income assumed that they're earning an income. They're probably left. They're basically left to their own devices. So it's it, yeah, it is a. It's nice that the government takes care of most of our population, but but not all, that's for sure. Well, I'm, as I mentioned on my blog earlier today, I mean, the the long-term solution here is a national pharmacare program, and the ca- yeah. politicians have been talking about that, well, since 1964. Sure. When, yeah. when, when Medicare came into play, being here in Canada, uh, this was supposed to be part of the deal. Uh, and the government at that time said, look, it, you know, it's a little costly. Give us another year or two, and then we'll implement it. Well, it's 2018 now. We're still waiting. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that and it's our taxes gonna... keep going up, so I don't know what's yeah. going on. <laughs> uh, and, and I know that there are other countries that have done this, especially a lot of the Scandinavian countries. And, and, yeah, you pay a little more in taxes. But, boy, to get this off your plate where you don't have to worry about something like that, I, I wonder if it's worth it. But I don't know that we're ready to have that discussion yet. Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, and I'm not sure if... Seven hundred thirty-one. When you put it in a seven hundred thirty-one thousand. When you put it in a number form as opposed to a percentage form, you know that's less than less than two percent of Canadians. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what 
what priority the government puts on less than 2% of Canadians. If it was a, a higher percentage, maybe then the government uh, makes takes more uh, account of this study. But with 731,000, it seems like a lot, but less than 2% of Canadians, I don't know how important it is to the government. But I guess the message, the takeaway from this, Jay, is that we as individuals have to take more responsibility, financial responsibility, because uh, governments are doing less for us now. You got it. And I think that's what young Canadians have to think about is say, listen, I, I do need this this coverage. I know I don't need it today, but in the event that I do need this, I need to take advantage of those company plans where they're offering me uh, the option to take the plan. I better take it. So how do you how do you counsel somebody at this young demographic age who, who's doing this? As you say, they're trying to save for a house. Uh, start a family maybe in situations like this, they're probably not making a whole lot of money. Right. And if they're on a contract situation, uh, you know, forget about trying to even get benefits out of this. How do, you, how do you set a budget for something like this and then at the same time set aside some money for things like this, un- unknown things that could pop up from time to time, like medications, uh, dental work, things of that nature? Yeah, and that's what we do. We, we'll set some uh, some boundaries for people and say, this is how we have to budget. This is part of your everyday life. This is just the same as putting gas in your car and food in your belly. You have to pay for these premiums, and it's part of doing business. It's part of being an adult. And unfortunately, it's a cost that no one wants to burden, but it has to be there, and you have to take on those benefits, whether it's through your corporation or your company or whether it's on an individual basis. There's lots of companies out there that offer individual coverage, and you just have to make it part of your your, your monthly budget, and there's sacrifices that have to be made if it's if it's not going out to dinner one one night or or two nights a, a month um, to pay for these benefits, and that's what has to be done. It's the same thing. It's no different than any other financial goal. Um, unfortunately, this can be life or death. So um, this is a little bit more important than saving for you know that that fancy car that you wanted to buy or something like that or or going on a trip. This is a this is a priority for sure. Okay, but how difficult is it though uh, when when you You've got all these other priorities on your list, uh, and and here's Jay telling me, look, at you got to put some money aside just in case. It's got to be very tempting to want to dip into that. Yeah, and it, it's just it's got to be habitual. It's got to become part of your your DNA as you know when you start working, saying, okay, it's going to cost me a, a hundred dollars a month or whatever the dollar amount is. I'm just I'm grabbing numbers from the sky, but if it's a hundred dollars a month, you need to put that aside and put it into a plan, and then it just becomes a bill. And it's a if your company doesn't cover you, you need to get your own coverage and make sure that you have uh, sustainable coverage for the rest of till you're 65 or whenever you start working for a company maybe that does have benefits. But you really have to make it part of your, it's almost like it comes off your paycheck and you know that it's part of what you have to live off. Whatever's left at the end of the day, that's what you have to live off. Now, lower income um, individuals, there's programs that the government offers, people that make uh, under $20,000 a year. Um, There's lots of programs that are available to those types of people. So I don't know, again, from the study, I don't know who they're all, uh, who they were asking or what, what demographic in terms of income levels and things like that. Um, but I, to be honest, it really has to be part of a habitual um, process when, when, you're, when you start getting your first paycheck to say, listen, I'm putting this aside. Um, I'm not going out for dinner. I'm not buying nice clothes or, or whatever the case may be. Are, are there do financial institutions offer vehicles for that? Uh, different programs where you can yeah, simply say, "Yeah, absolutely." Oh, yeah, there's there's a, a number of different. Uh, the banks offer it. Uh, financial institutions, insurance companies, uh, they're readily available. You can go online. There's lots of uh, lots of sites online. Just Google uh, individual health benefits, and there's there's a number of different companies that offer it. 
Jay, thanks as always. Really appreciate you uh, hopping onto the program today and uh, shedding some light on this. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me, Phil. Take care. Jay Llewellyn, of course, consultant at the Investors Group. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.